Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles and open with me this morning to Philippians Philippians, while you're turning there, several reminders for the mission of our church. One, tomorrow night, men at 6 o'clock in the North Multipurpose Room will be men's night. A good friend of mine, uh, Pastor Justin Gates, will be speaking. Um, He spent several years in law enforcement before the Lord called him to gospel ministry. So I'm looking forward to getting to hear from him tomorrow night. Uh, Also, you'll see these in the North Community Room. This is our 17th anniversary celebration mug that didn't get here for our 17th anniversary. It was a week late. So pick one of these up and take it with you. Here's the thing. This is not just a white mug. I know what you're thinking. I don't drink coffee. No, no, no. You can drink tea out of this too. Hot or cold. Hot or cold. Did you hear that? I mean, water. You can drink water out of this. Mostly, take one of these with you. And put it on your desk, put it in a place where you'll remember and remember that you are greatly loved by the Lord and by LifePoint Church. That's our hope and our desire for what you will remember. One last one that is so important. Uh, From our church planting partnership in Montana, we have our first church plant that has begun today that we are helping to support. It is called the the church at Four Corners. It's just outside of Bozeman. And last week they met for kind of an organizational meeting and today they meet for the first time in public service. Um, it, It was two churches, one that basically had about 10 people left after the pandemic uh, kind of began to reemerge and were struggling. And then another church who uh, basically there was, had not been much there for a long time. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and they've come together. Uh, Lee Merck, uh, our partner, is the new church planter there. We'll probably end up planting it for a couple of years and then handing it off as he has kind of a broader responsibility in Montana. But we're excited about it. Excited about partnering with them and seeing all that the Lord has for the church at Four Corners in Bozeman. All right, well, let's go to our message for today. I want to talk about gospel humility from the letter of Philippians. We'll be in chapter two. Gospel humility, the mind of Christ. And let me begin with a question. What do you think of when you hear the word humility? What do you think of when you hear the word humility? Humility. It's kind of one of those words where people are like, oh, hmm. you know, start uh, looking for something else to focus on. It's a lot like patience, I find. Not many people want to pray or ask for it because they feel that they fear they'll be taught it, right? Uh, and, and so it's, it's one of those things. But biblical humility is not just a valuable characteristic. It is essential for every Christian in the church. It's essential, and that's what we're going to see today. But first and foremost, let's go to the Word, chapter 2. I'm going to read for us the first 11 verses as we continue. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. The Apostle Paul walks through the first chapter of Philippians And man, he's just stirring it up so richly for all that God has done, not only among the church at Philippi and the work that he's done there, but through the work at Philippi over the last decade or so. And and now he's, he's using that as the foundation and a springboard to apply what he is about to teach them because of what God has done among them. Now, Philippi is an interesting city, and and as we talked about, it's unique, and the church there was unique as well. And it didn't have a lot of the problems that some of the other churches in the New Testament had. It didn't have the the sexual perversions to the extent that the Corinthian church had. It it didn't have all the high elitist uh, intellectual argumentation that the church at Colossae was embroiled with. But it did have its problems. It was not absent of conflict and division. And the main conflict and division of the church at Philippi was just simply this. Mostly of differing opinions. Differing opinions. It's interesting in the church tradition I grew up in, four people showed up. You had no less than nine opinions. I mean, you had to calculate for the compounded uh, effect of people being there, right? And so here's what we learned, that that this is normal when people continue to live with self at the center for their opinions, their mindset to rule themselves. But a, a Christian is called to live with Jesus at the center of their life. They're called to live distinctively for him. And God calls Christians to self denial, not self fulfillment. God calls Christians to self sacrifice, not self consumption. So the only way to live a Jesus-centered life is to learn the glory of humility by the gospel. This is what Paul is wanting us to see. Now, humility is one of those things that's not natural to us. As a matter of fact, it opposes everything natural about us because we're sinners. And just a very practical definition of sin is self-centered. Self-centered is sinful and sin, is, it's embarrassing. It's a blight against our human pride that must be constantly addressed. And, and one commentator explains humility in light of the historical context when he says this. Before the New Testament era, the word humility had a negative connotation. It was frequently used to describe the mentality of a slave. It conveyed the idea of nothingness, of no account, And hence, humility could not have been regarded by the pagan as a virtue to be sought after. 
Well, too often in our day and time, it's considered the same. You see, humility was considered in the ancient world as it is too often considered today despicable. Despicable, except, except when putting forth a humility can serve self, which is the very opposite of what it really is anyway, right? It's kind of like somebody convincing you of how humble they really are. Never passes the sniff test, ever, right? But listen to what Jesus did. Jesus made humility a virtue. He made humility a virtue. Paul calls the Philippians to unity in the church, unity in Christ because of the humility that we have from him. This is not just to live like Jesus. I don't want you to hear me saying that. We'll get there and there's a way in which that is appropriately applied. But rather, humility because of Jesus and only through Jesus that fuels the life he wants us to live. Christians can humble themselves by faith because Jesus did humble himself by faith. That's what's so important for us to understand this. True humility is only produced by the work of Jesus in the Christian's life. Humility from every Christian is the key to unity in the church. And so here's what I want you to walk away with today. Jesus came down and offered up his life that those who trust in him might empty life of self to live for God's glory. Jesus came down and offered up himself that those who trust in him might empty them their lives of self to live for his glory. Now, the really the, the question of the morning that we are aiming at is how does the gospel produce humility in us? We're not looking at what we produce for God, our performance for God, but because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, how is it that the gospel produces humility in us? And that's what I want us to run at today in, in, in understanding that Christians humble themselves because of five gospel distinctives that glorify God. Five gospel distinctives. Let me begin with the first distinctive and then we'll dive right into the first verse. Distinctive number one of how the gospel produces humility is that Christians humble themselves because the gospel forms you through fellowship. The gospel forms you through fellowship. Look at what Paul's doing in the first two verses. He said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in your life from the love of God, if there's any uh, participation in the spirit, in the work of God, or any affection and sympathy. You see, after celebrating all of the gospel fellowship throughout chapter one that he celebrated, and he drew them into a deeper understanding of their experience together, and even just to remember through the years what God had done among them, Paul turns now to build on the glories of that fellowship. And that's what he said, so if there is. Now, those words in the Greek would be more appropriately understood by us by just simply the word since there is. You say, well, why did he ask it the way that he asked it? Because there's a reason Paul uh, uh, framed his statement in the way that he did. He is trying to help the Philippians recognize 
what God has done about them. He says, if there is any encouragement from Christ, have you had any encouragement from Christ? There's no way they could say no after the first chapter. Why? Because he had been reminding them of it. Has there been any comfort from love? Sure there has been. So he's saying this, since there is encouragement, since there is comfort, since there is participation in the spirit, since there is affection and sympathy among us, we know what God has done. Therefore, he says, he wants them to recognize what is true in Christ must be the determinant of what unites them in Christ. And he says this, complete my joy. Joy fills the church when Christians live out what they know to be true of their life in Jesus. The work of God in his people through communion with him translates into the reality of God among his people by their Fellowship. Let me say it in a little different way. Relationship with God cultivates fellowship with other Christians. Relationship with God cultivates fellowship with other Christians. Christians can have the same mind. That right there is a statement of faith. Is it not? If you've been in the church for more than a week, that's a statement of faith. If this is the first time you've ever stepped in the church, let's talk afterwards so I can maybe flesh this out a little more and help you understand what I mean. We can have the same mind. We can have the same love. We can be in full accord and mind with one another because the gospel addresses every doubt, every fear, every hurt, every wound, every need of life. And we can trust God for these things to be supplied to us as he listen to me, administers them through the local church to us. You see, a Christian's joy in Christ depends on your participation in Christian community. Now, I don't know if you've recognized this or not, but we are doing everything we can to scream joy at you before you get into the building here. We've covered every window with stickers that remind you of the joy that we have in Christ and we just want to get into your head. That's our whole aim here. And we want to remind you of what we have in Christ. But listen, the reason is because is my conviction that we are in such a day and age when it can be so easy to forget what we have in Christ. And I think in this day and time, so many maybe are forgetting or maybe you're just being so overwhelmed that it's very difficult to remember the joy that we have in Christ. And I want to be a place, I want to be a people that continues to remind you of the fundamentals of what God has given us in Jesus. A love that fills us to overflowing with joy from Jesus. And that joy depends on your participation in Christian Community. You see, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to form their whole lives by the design which he is teaching to them, but also by the determination of their own doing which he is instructing them in, to form their whole lives around the truths of the gospel. And this does not mean there's never a competing affection or countering ideology that comes along. Actually, we're consistently and continually confronted by these things. Things that raise themselves against the truths of the gospel. But 
When it arises, they're not entertained. They're not tolerated. They're not allowed to remain. Not because somebody else snuffs them out, but because you in your own heart and life, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, are seeing the lies and the deception. And you can see clearly the truth of God's intent for you. You see, the church unites with one another because of him who brings us together, Jesus Christ. And so gospel fellowship is forming us to reject individualism among us because of Jesus' lordship over us. That's how fellowship among the church forms us. We are reminded of what Christ has done for us, of his lordship over us. And so as he ministers to us among the church, we are rejecting our individualism to lay down ourselves in order to take on Christ. At LifePoint, we talk a lot about the word together. Together, and this is everything that we mean. It's our full provision in Jesus that unites us to form us in his image. And you know what Paul's doing in chapter 2 is he's taking the full measure of the influence that he has gained with the Philippians over a 10-year period or so when they've seen his life demonstrated all out for the gospel. And he's saying, this is not just for me, it's for every one of you. Because God is sufficient for all of us. And he's using all of his influence to persuade them to what he is calling them to because he understands he is fighting the very essence of sin in every individual at its core in this. And he tells them to live this way because the gospel will be sufficient for you, for joy to be full in you. Yes, he says, complete my joy, but it's not a selfish desire he has, but rather to say, in the completing of my joy, you will find your joy. He's concerned for them all. You see, joy in the Lord is made complete and whole when life is formed by the gospel and the truths of the gospel lived out in the fellowship among his people. That's the first gospel distinctive. The second gospel distinctive that he flows immediately into is that Christians humble themselves because the gospel is sufficient to source true lives. Not only are our lives formed in the fellowship of God's people and gospel community, but we humble ourselves because what we find in the gospel is sufficient to source life. And so Paul says to them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Once Paul exhorts them to live the gospel truths out to unite them, he commands them and how it is they should do this. Because a Christian is loved and accepted by God. We, we can cease the rivalries among ourselves. We can reject self-conceit in order to count others more significant. When our identity is consumed and defined by God's love in Jesus, we can live in all the security that Christ provides for us because he meets all of the demands of our heart. So we don't have to guard our own security of worth, of value, of dignity and significance. I don't have to guard myself from you because the value of who I am is not determined by my performance or my accolades. It's vaulted with Christ in heaven. 
It's determined by God's love, and so is yours to me. You don't have to impress me. You're already loved by God. That's what the gospel reminds us of. So when we come together, we can lay down the instruments of impressing one another to offer up the honesty, the vulnerability of who we are. We can reject looking to our own interests. I don't have to walk in and go, God, you know, I got a lot of needs today and I'm expecting these people to meet them. But rather we can lay down and go, God, I want to come in. I want to be a part of what you're doing today. And I want you to use me however you see fit. You see, there are times when we are the object of being served. We are so deplete. All we've got is need. But listen, friends, here's what we know in the gospel. When we bring everything that we can offer to God, the fullness of our sin, he doesn't turn us away. He actually says that's all you need to get in, to be broken, to be sinful, and to be in need. Because once you make that confession, you stand before God exactly where you need to be to receive from him what he has for you. And sometimes that's how we come, needy. And we come because of whatever life has thrown at us. We feel as though we are the object of serving, being served on that day. But more than not, we come to say this, that Lord, I want to be used today. And, and I feel my need, but it's not overwhelming. And I sense my inadequacy, but it's not going to stop me. And so I want to offer my life to be served in whatever way that you want to to use me today. And what we find is through our service, we get served even more than we expected to be. You see, the person worried about self cannot afford to consider another. Humility is too risky. But the gospel fills a person with God's love in Jesus to empty our life of self and to consider other people's interests. I want to use an application for an illustration today. I want to talk a little bit about the church at large. And surely we as a church are not unaffected or immune to this influence. We fight it weekly, I assure you. But I'm not speaking only to our church. I'm speaking in generality, so I can't say that what I say is true of every individual. But I'm trying to shape a consideration that I think directly applies from the word of God today to our times in which we are living. And the chatter along church leadership lines today about the church is how the new divisions and what they are that are redefining the church. If you do much reading on church leadership and study the church, you won't take very long to get to this. It's now said that church affiliation will be determined by a different set of personal preferences of the past. Now, Church affiliation has been being defined by personal preferences more than anything else, I would argue, for at least a couple of generations. But the preferences that people are using to determine what churches they affiliate with are shifting. And the futurists that are speaking of the church are now telling us that people are going to look for a church that aligns with their political alignment. Is this a more red or a more blue church? They're telling us that they're going to align with, is this a church that, that is pro-vax or anti-vax? Is this a church that's pro-mask or anti-mask? And these are the things that, that, are, that are the leading preferences that are causing people to define where they're going to go to church. 
Now, for decades, I have, uh, excuse me, for decades, we have lived in what I have labeled a post-denominational age. And I've been talking about this for about seven or eight years and watching it. What do I mean by post-denominational age? I, I think this is good and bad. It has good and bad elements of both. But a couple of generations ago, people understood the role of denominations in church life and, and that it distinguished their beliefs from some other beliefs, but it didn't necessarily cause them to loathe one another. I can remember as a kid growing up in our small town, we would go into the, we would go into the pizza hut on Sunday nights because it's about the only place open to eat. And there we were, we'd walk in as Southern Baptists and we would go and kind of inhabit a part of the restaurant and no more had we set our plate down and were we going to go to the buffet line to get some pizza than the Methodists would walk in. The highbrow Methodists, they were the first to lunch on Sundays, but the last to finish dinner on Sunday nights. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's who they were. And you'd see a nod across the room. I know you, it's Sunday though. We know you. And then the Presbyterians would come and the high culture of the Methodists would sequester to the higherness of the Presbyterians and they would sit in a little different area. And then the Charismatics would walk in and things would start to get loose. I mean, you know, they were chatty and, and I mean, and then the, the Pentecostals would come in right behind them and, and then the Church of Christ would come in and the Christian church and, and everybody was kind of squaring off and the tension was rising and then the non-denominationals would walk in and everything kind of go, whoa, it's all good. And people would be fellowshipping across denominational lines. Why? Because they understood where they believed and what that meant for them, but it didn't have to divide them. But something about our world has changed. We can't talk to people we don't agree with about the minutia of life anymore. And that doesn't translate anywhere more than in the church. And so I think there's some good things about a post-denominational age that have gone away. But I think there's some bad things about it too. And let me explain. You see, I think it's been accelerated and is accelerating the demise of the church influence, not just on the world at large, but upon the people who are Christians itself. By this thing that I've been railing against for a number of years called biblical illiteracy. You see, my fear is not that we've broken down dividing lines for all the right reasons, but that we've let them decay and fall because of vast ignorance. Now, if you think I'm insulting you, I don't mean to be doing that. I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just telling you the overall trajectory of the church. There is a biblical illiteracy among Christians today that is like none other in any time in history. And you don't have to trust me. You can do your own research and find that there are people who, by quantitative and qualitative means, that means they're really smart, they are establishing this. And, and that the overall influence of the church is on a full-scale slide demise. People stop worrying about studying to know the Bible and learning doctrine so that it benefited their life, which is the good way, not so it divided them from other people, which can be the bad way. They just started listening to their favorite voice. And their participation in church was determined by more by personal preference. Do you like 
of the songs that they sing? Or, or do you like the way they sing the songs they sing? Is there a sermon theme that you can identify with? Does it have any relevance to my life? Uh, do they have programs that I can embrace and that will benefit me? It, it was revolved more around felt needs. And the church became driven more by entertainment than participation. Because the demand of people was placed upon it. Now, now listen to me. I want you to understand something here. I'm not just blaming people for all the problems of church leaders. It's everybody else's fault, you know. The joke is ministry would be easy if it weren't for people. Except for there would be no ministry if it weren't for people. And churches would be a lot better off if their leaders weren't so imperfect. That's another joke. It's okay to laugh at that. I made it. But you see, it's, church is not just about us. Not just, it's about him. It's about the Lord. And when it became more driven by entertainment than participation, we begin to see something emerge, what has been labeled rock star syndrome. Pastors are given this elitist status. And, and, and it may just not be the one preaching. It might be the worship leader. It might be significant people who spend time on the stage. But they're given this kind of sexy, cultural, iconish of rock star syndrome. And, and that began to emerge. And so if you're looking to what voice do I listen to, well, they must have something to say. I mean, look how big their platform is after all. And, and, and look how many followers they have. And look how much stuff that they put out. I mean, good grief. They're writing four books a week. How impressive they must be. And then all of this came up, most interestingly to me, at the same time that this anti-authority culture began to sway. You see, as the nucleus family in our society began to break down, as we began to deal a generation and a half ago with fatherless homes, and, and now they're talking about being parentless homes, and the, the image of authority in our world began to break down, this culture began to develop of an anti-authority. And, and at the same time, an anti-authority culture is being purported, a rock star status is being given to church leaders and I'm trying to understand that but but basically the anti-authority culture says as long as I can tolerate it I'll listen to it but if you cross lines I'll have nothing to do with it Paul teaches about this to Timothy when he says there will come a time when people will not tolerate what doesn't scratch their itch ironically anti-authority culture has shifted now to other cultures being determined in our world, the rage culture, where it says there is no in-between. There are only two points on the spectrum. And you either adequately represent ours with a heightened, heated rage, or you inaccurately do it, and I won't be able to tolerate that. We have cancel culture that says if you say something that's what we used to call politically incorrect, they just call it incorrect now. You get canceled, and not just personally, but they go after you publicly. And I can tell you this, there is no shortage of pastors and leaders scared to absolute death about being publicly canceled if they say something wrong. We've emotionally coddled ourselves so much that we've embraced the idea of victimhood for everybody. 
And this is not to say that there are no true victims in the world. There absolutely are. But sadly enough, they're the ones that suffer the most in a victimhood culture when everybody gets to be some kind of victim and in some way that validates their identity. We become so biblically convoluted that we have no faithful biblical framework to process and to discern life. And it's killing us. So now, people choose home church or online church over or as a participation with the church. I'm not talking about when situations or circumstances are such that that has to be the option. Understand, I accept that. I understand that. And that's something that people ought to have the option to make a personal decision about. And I'm thankful for the technology to be able to provide that. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm just talking about people who have said, you know what? We've just decided we'd rather not get out of bed on Sunday morning. And, and here's the saddest part to me as a church leader. There are no few churches that are happy to count your click as their success. But it only creates and propagates the very thing that the heart most loathes. Dead, empty, self-centered religion. That's all that is, friends. That's all that is. And now, now we have a culture emerging where we are celebrating the fall and the demise of the very rock star that we created. And we're doing it with the same zeal with which we built their platform for them. And translating that into a personal nature, we're actually paying people big money now, but only the right ones, because who wants to get this wrong? Paying people to teach us how to deconstruct our own faith. I mean, don't want to mess that one up, do you? None of this is illegitimate, and none of this is preconceived in my own mind. I'm just telling you where the, 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 the stars are aligning in the conversation today. And I'll say this, the way that we're celebrating the deconstruction of people's faith and legitimizing it by normalizing it, this will have a far greater harm and other, another form of abuse than even the rage and the intolerance and the other things that are being celebrated. All of these are little more than personal preferences exercised as self-centered religion. And I'll say this, it's exactly what Paul is talking about in verses 1 through 4. Exactly what he's talking about. It's easy for us to go, oh, they had difference of opinion in Philippi. But it wasn't just difference of opinion. It's exactly the kind of divisions that Paul was calling out in the church. Friends, humility is the ultimate trust in Jesus because it is a revolution against self. That's what humility is. It is a revolution against self. It says, all of me is in Jesus so I can go all in to love others knowing that he is sufficient to source my whole life. And when I live in him, 
I will not find the end because he has no end in his source. You see, humility releases us of self-interest to invest in Christian community, to live vulnerably and honestly among God's people who are loving you and learning to love you. And some are on a different end of the scale than others. Some are just beginning and they're going to make a lot more mistakes. And then some of us have been doing it a lot longer and ours are a lot worse mistakes. We're all making mistakes. To grow, this is why we're investing in one another, to grow in our own sanctification and the authenticity of our faith, to to serve others for the same purpose. We're fighting this war not against one another, but with one another because our very lives are at stake in the lives of others. And without humility, fellowship is a threatening, and it's a scary thing because what if I get outed? What if it gets proven that I'm a fraud, that I get discovered as something less than I have claimed to be? Listen, anything bad you learn of me, you have no idea the extent or the depth of the truth of that. I can give you 10 things at any given time. Why? Because of sin. But by God's grace, he's working these things out, not only in me, but through me because of you. In humility, we make no claims of self, only the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for us. And we can only know the gospel sufficiency for our life when we humble ourselves because gospel sufficiency sources the Christians with God's power to deny self and to live to serve others. When Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God unto life for those who believe. I tell you, every inkling and every dark corner of your life that gets exposed by the truth of God's word will not find the gospel insufficient to redeem you. If you will humble yourselves, repent, and trust Christ. The third gospel distinctive is that Christians humble themselves by the gospel to adopt the mind of Christ. Verse five, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, have this mind, Paul commands it, it's an imperative verb, but he says you have it because it's been given to you. It's not something you achieve. Once united in fellowship and living in the sufficiency of the gospel, Paul says, we leave nothing to doubt or chance in ourselves, but we take on the mind of Christ. He doesn't just put us on our feet and hope we know how to walk again alone, but rather we take on the very nature of Christ in us, Christ for us, Christ over us, Christ through us. He's not just saying be like Jesus, but rather because of Christ, because of what he's done for you, because of what he's given for you, take on the mind of Christ. We are given the mind of Christ in order to discern the will of God, but we must adopt it as our own in order to apply the truth of God's word. That's why Romans 12, 2, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may discern God's will, what is good, what is pleasing, and what is perfect. You cannot do that in your own mind. I don't care what kind of mental gymnastics you perform. You may do that, but it will only lead to deception. But the mind of Christ will never mislead you. 
And that, that's why we must adopt the mind of Christ. We were given the mind of Christ to discern God's will and to adopt it as our own. And what is the pattern of Christ's mind? But humility and obedience. Humility and obedience. And so his instruction forms the opinion and the mindset because it rightly reflects what we are given in Christ. In salvation and in communion with Christ. What's strengthened in us by the Holy Spirit through our fellowship with Christians. You see, the Christian life only works as the Holy Spirit enlightens the living word of God to empower us to live this life. That's why Christians do not just simply ex- uh, accept parts of the Bible, the, li- the parts that we like, the parts that we agree with, or the parts that we prefer, or, or the parts that, that say something relevant to us, but rather the truth of God's word is that the glory of the mind of Christ is in the whole counsel of God. And the gospel is what farms that out. It filters that out. It illumines that, illuminates the word by the work of the spirit. And so we're not being counseled to consider the potential value of God's word for our life, but rather adopting the mind of Christ means that we submit to God's living word fully by faith. When I read it and I don't understand it, my prayer is God, help me here. Open this up. Open my eyes. Whatever sin is blocking me from wanting to receive this show that to me so I can hear it God in my understanding or my agreement with this God don't let my disagreement cause me to walk away but show me the glory of who you are as I submit myself to what you have said to understand how I need to walk it out because of what you are doing in me this is how we come to the Bible this is how we adopt the mind of Christ The fourth distinctive, verses six through eight, is that Christians humble themselves because the gospel motivates us by the sacrifice of Christ. This is how when we come to the scriptures and it says something we don't like, agree with, or understand, that we can remain before him to let the spirit of God permeate our heart and mind to teach us. And what does Paul do here? He moves to a hymn of exaltation. He exalts the attitude of Jesus Christ in his humiliation, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If being God isn't a get out of worrying about what God has to say card, I don't know what is, but it wasn't, and neither is it for us. He demonstrates Jesus' humility by telling us who he was. He was God. But when the father said to the son, go, I send you, he didn't leave heaven hanging on to the sides of the door, kicking and screaming because he didn't want to do it. It says he emptied himself. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done is what he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He emptied himself and he became A person, he took on the form of humanity and as a man he humbled himself to the will of the Father all the way to death. Don't you for one instant believe that the people of the first century are the ones who are responsible to kill Jesus? They were nothing more than instruments in the hand of God. Jesus willingly offered up his life for us. And yes, they were used to carry out the act but it was not in aversion to Jesus' will. 
And this is the glory. This is the beauty. This is why Paul says, don't just look at Jesus to be your model. But let him motivate you by the very sacrifice of his willingly being laid down and crucified for you. The way Jesus thought about himself led him to act sacrificially for others, all who would believe in him. You see, there's, there's so much that can rightly be said about verses 6 through 11, what is called the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. But I want to just clarify a twofold purpose for our purposes today. First of all, Jesus became our sacrifice by humbling himself or emptying himself. And secondly, his act becomes a model of ultimate humility. Do not get the order wrong here, though, friends. Because his model will serve no purpose for you if first you haven't beheld his sacrifice. Yes, he is the highest model, but only after we understand all that he accomplished in his sacrifice. For the one who will not trust in Christ, there's no value in his model. And for the one who wants to offer their own expertise or accomplishments to God, there's nothing but frustration in that because we can never be who Jesus was. But when we trust him to receive from him, his sacrifice stands at the center of God's redemptive work for sin. Therefore, we must behold Jesus on the cross in order to trust God's sacrifice for us and then humble our whole life by his model to God's will in us. Friends, Jesus makes humility gloriously worthy by modeling the glory of humility ultimately for us. That's the whole point, friends, of Jesus who modeled the sacrifice or motivates us by his sacrifice. And fifth, Christians humble themselves because only by the gospel do our lives glorify God. Therefore, verse 9, Paul writes, and anytime you see that in scripture, you look at what came immediately before to understand what came after. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The glory of Christ's humiliation is revealed in the glory of his exaltation. If Jesus had not been raised from the tomb, had been raised from the dead, he would have just been another death like any other human. But he was, so it wasn't. And because of that, we live differently in every way. Christians humble themselves by the gospel to rest in God's will because we know his faithfulness for us by his faithfulness to Jesus. That's why James confidently asserts, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. He will raise you up and he will glorify himself in us. There is no greater motivation for humility for the Christian. The only question that remains is will you let anything prevent it in your own life? Jesus came down and offered up his life that those who trust in him might empty life of self to live for God's glory. Would you bow your head? As the worship team returns, I want to ask you, Christian, is there anything in your heart and life that is preventing you from taking on the mind of Christ because you just simply will not humble yourself in that place 
or that area to God. Surely in our time, we see and the Holy Spirit works to show us where it is that God wants to speak to us today. And I'm asking you to listen and to respond to him at that very place. You see, this is not about whether or not there are different opinions in the room. But even when we see our own opinions, we make sure that the gospel is applied and so that we can see God's work in our own hearts and lives. And that's what I'm asking you for today. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me ask you this question. Is there anything in your life that is worthy of your full submission to? I think we wouldn't have to look very far in a self-centered life to say no, not even self. Because we ourselves know we're not perfect. We're not perfect. We may be doing the best we can, but we're broken at the very best. And friends, the gospel says to us, we don't have to perform for God. God sent Jesus to perform in our place for us. And if we will humble ourselves, he will give to us what we could never get for ourselves. And he will give us the life that only Christ can provide. Would you receive him today by humbling yourself, repenting of yourself, and receiving new life in Jesus?